All right, so we're not in Ezekiel today. We're, we're going to do an Easter sermon. Uh, I've never taught this story before, so we're going to get through. We're going to be in the book of John. So if you have a Bible, uh, turn to, does anybody have a Bible? Is that just me? If you can uh, tap to, scroll to, uh, tell Alexa to open up um, the book of John, chapter 20. Um, you guys know the newlywed game? You remember this back in the day? Was that, was that the 70s probably? It's a pretty simple premise. You get two newlyweds together, and one of them has to answer questions about the, you know, and then about the other person, and then see what the other person says and see if they match, right? Um, one of the questions they always ask on the newlywed game is, what's your biggest pet peeve? You know this? And um, I think me and Melissa, well, we've been married for like 45 years or whatever, but um, would be pretty good at the newlywed game. Like, Melissa, what's my ideal vacation? Doing nothing. See? That's what I would have held. That's exactly what I would have held up. Uh, pet peeve, I think she might know too, but I won't put you on the spot. Uh, it's the most mad I ever, no, not the most mad. It's when I squeeze her hand when we're at like a wedding and they read a stupid verse that has nothing. Yeah, see, she knows. Okay, my pet peeve is terrible Bible reading. Okay, when I'm out there and I'm watching Pulp Fiction and they're quoting a Bible verse that has nothing to do with whatever they're talking about. Or, um, well, I call this Veggie Tales. The big one is, I call it Veggie Tales Hermeneutics, right? Uh, and it's in, you learn about this, there's a Veggie Tales class in seminary you have to take. And um, Veggie Tales Hermeneutics goes like this that we take the characters from the Bible and we make them superheroes. And then we tell kids, you have to go be like the superheroes. So David, he was the most faithful, and you should be just like David. And, you know, Paul and Peter and all these guys. The problem with that is, is you read the Bible, and then you go, oh, wait, these are just regular people. Right? You read the, we, we, read, we went through this a lot in Luke. The disciples wrote, they passed down this information to Luke, and they wrote the other Gospels, right? And they do not come off well in those gospels. And they did that on purpose because they want you to know, hey, we're not superheroes. We're just regular people. And all right, regular people struggle. And regular people struggle with things like faith and doubt. Um, there's a guy who's this really brilliant theologian. His name is Os Guinness. And um, yeah, he's super cool. And he's actually part of the Guinness family, like the beer family. Right? He's like the, he's the great grandson of the beer guy. One of, you know, there's a bunch of them. I think his cousins or something run the company now. So he says this uh, in, a, in a book he wrote talking about this. Our English word doubt comes from the Latin. Dubitare. Dubitare. There we go. Thanks, Bella. Uh, we found out today Bella is like, a, you know, majored in Latin or something. So she was going to help me with that. Uh, Dubitare, which is rooted in an uh, Aryan word meaning to. To believe is to be in one mind about accepting something as true. To disbelieve is to be in one mind about rejecting it. To doubt, then, what he's saying, is to waver between the two. To believe and to disbelieve at once so as to be in two minds. Okay, do you get that? What he's saying is there's a difference between doubting and unbelief. Uh, but it's a fine line. Belief is over here, right? I believe something is true. Uh, unbelief is way over here. I'm on the other side and I know it's not true. Doubt is, ah, do I want to go over here? Or do I want to go over here? Right, so let's give an example from not religious stuff, okay? 
Is the earth flat? Okay, we've got flat earthers. They're over here. They believe the earth is flat. Okay. Uh, Kyrie Irving, he's like, he's doubting. You know what I mean? You guys know Kyrie Irving? He tweeted about, you just got to do your own research. Uh, he's not sure what people believe. Me, I'm over here. I am a settled unbeliever. I know for a fact that the earth is not flat because it's a cube, guys. All right, this sermon, no, I'm just, no, not really. How many of you will leave church if that's what I did? No, that'd be funny. Uh, in Christianity, we have this idea. It's called justification by faith. And what that means is that we're saved by our faith, not by our actions. We're not saved by doing good things to come to Jesus. Uh, what we believe is how we're saved or not, right? And what we believe is the gospel, that God created the world and he made it perfect, and that we fell and we broke it in Genesis chapter 3. And our sin was a rebellion against him and his lordship in our lives. Then we move to redemption, where he, he's got this big plan to fix it in ways that we never could, and Jesus comes, he dies, he rises again. And then we look forward with hope to the rest restoration or the consummation where eventually he's going to put the world back together. He's going to destroy sin and live with his people forever in a perfect recreation of the world that we live in now. He's going to put the world back together. That's what we believe as Christians. But that belief, if we're honest, is not always perfect. Because at the fall, when we fell, when, uh, when sin entered the world, sin broke every part of us. Every part of us was, is touched by sin in some way. So your body is touched by sin. If you don't believe me, uh, you should have seen the week that I just had, right? I threw up so much I lost 12 pounds, right? This is, can you tell? Nobody even said, wow, you only look kind of fat. Uh, just kidding. <laughs> um, Right, but you've been sick. You know what it's like to break your foot because you don't know how to walk on a train, or um, I don't know. I won't go. I could go around, uh, but I'll just I'll just pick on Dennis today, right? Um, you guys know what it's like to to see me preach and go like this, and then oh hey, actually my arm is broken. Turns out. I was standing right here when that happened, and uh, the world is broken. Our bodies are broken. Our minds are broken. Our bodies are part of our mind, and our mind is it doesn't always work the way that it should. But also our souls we're tainted by sin, the spiritual part of us. And so you can see that we're never going to have perfect faith. So how does the Bible talk then about faith and doubt? Well, as you read the Bible, uh, here, I'll pause. I'll let you guys read it real quick. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, as you read through the whole Bible, you see that three things happen when the Bible talks about faith and doubt. The first is the Bible always praises faith. Um, settled over here, I believe the gospel. The Bible always says that's good. You should always believe the gospel, and if you're not here, you should be trying to get over there, okay? The second thing is the Bible is always harsh with unbelief. Like unbelief, people who are settled and they're standing over here, Jesus is constantly rebuking people for unbelief. So much of the Old Testament prophets were them telling the people of God, hey, I have a message from God for you, and he's super angry about your unbelief. He's super angry about your idolatry. So first is, it always praises faith. Second is, the Bible is always harsh with unbelief. But the third thing is, the Bible never is a little different with doubt. The Bible never praises doubt as if it's some kind of a holy spiritual discipline. You should want to be a doubter. The Bible never takes that path. But scripture is always gentle with people who struggle with doubt. Um, I didn't put this quote up here, but uh, Bertrand Russell 
Uh, he said this, the whole problem with the world is that fools and fanatics are always so certain of themselves, but wise people are always so full of doubts. Now that seems nice, doesn't it? You should never really be sure of anything. That's kind of what he's saying. Um, it sounds nice on paper, but the Bible doesn't really take that position. The Bible never says doubt is a virtue, that this ultimate skepticism, that you should go through life with the attitude that we can never really know what we believe. You should never walk through life that way. Um, and the truth is, with most things, we don't, right? Like, imagine if you went to the doctor, and he says, okay, here's what's wrong with you. Here's what you got to do to fix it. And you say, okay, is that really going to work? And the doctor says, well, I don't really believe we can know anything, and I'm not sure, and I didn't really pay attention in school, in medical school, because that's really not what I do. You'd probably be like, well, is there a doctor here who thinks they can learn about medicine and know what they really mean, you know? Um, right? This ultimate kind of skepticism is not noble. You want to... You wanna, airplane pilot who believes the plane will stay in the sky, you know? And everyone in every facet of life should be trying to be a person of truth. We should want to know things. We should want to settle on truth. You should never want to be here in the middle. You should want to be over here uh, settled on belief. But that's why when talking about doubt, the Bible does say things like um, in James 1, 6. Um, ooh, this got really bright, didn't it? And it just lit up my whole stage. And the, um, the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Now, the context of this verse is like he's talking about Christians and doubting what God says is true. But the idea here is that doubting is like being on a raft at the mercy of the sea. It's not great. Um, but like I said, the Bible, right, it never praises doubt as noble. It, it always has verses like this where it says, you know, it's not great to be a doubter, but... The Bible is usually gentle with people who doubt. Um, one example is, you guys know the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel? So there's the prophets of Baal, and they think they're all that in a bag of chips. People still say that, right? And um, uh, Elijah says, well, you guys aren't, and nobody likes you, so let's do a contest. I'm paraphrasing, of course, the New John Version. He says, let's get some sacrifices, some bulls or whatever. Let's put them on the altar. I forget, bulls or cows or whatever, some beef. And uh, let's put them on the, um, the altars here and let's have a barbecue. But what you got to do is call down, call to your God and have him send down fire from heaven. And then uh, you guys can go first. So they try to do it. And they're doing all this stuff and they're cutting themselves and bleeding and doing all this ritualistic stuff. And there's no fire from heaven. And Elijah starts making fun of them. And my favorite part of the whole Bible where he goes, hey, maybe Baal's on the toilet. Give him a few minutes. Maybe he's having trouble in the bathroom. Let's let's. You know, let's let him figure this out, and then he'll come do it, right? And then he doesn't. And then Elijah goes, all right, my turn. Hey, God, can you light this thing up for me? And then the fire comes down from heaven, whoosh, poof, lights it up. And then he says at the end of that uh, in 1 Kings 18, Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go on limping between these two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. So this is what Elijah says to these people is, you guys are doing this thing where you're waffling between these two gods, and it's, you've seen which one of these guys can call down fire from heaven, and it's time to make a decision. That's kind of the encouragement. You see how it's like true, but it's not exactly harsh. Um, there's a lot of these kind of all throughout Scripture, these instances, right? Like one is the Queen of Sheba. She's praised because she comes to Solomon, and she wants to, to learn all that she can. And in 1 Kings 10, it says, And Solomon answered all her questions, and there was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. So she's praised as somebody who shows up and says, Hey, I heard you're like the wisest guy ever, and 
can I pick your brain for a while? And God specifically says, yeah, I'm going to give Solomon all these answers for her because she's trying to find the truth. Or we have the Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts who's sitting on his chariot reading a scroll of Isaiah. And um, uh, Philip runs over and he goes, hey, do you know what this is all about? And he explains it to him. And that guy, he gets baptized and he's praised because he's a doubter at the time, but he's praised because he's looking for the answer. Or um, the Bereans, you guys know the Bereans? Paul goes to, we'll read, we're going to do Acts probably at some point eventually. Um, and Paul, he goes to this little town and he, he says, hey, Jewish guys. And, um, and they were like, hey, what's cracking? And he says, let me tell you about this Jesus guy. He opens up the Bible and he says, here's all this Jesus stuff. Let me tell you about him. I met him on the road. He knocked me off my horse and then I was blind. You guys, it was a whole thing. The scales fell off my eyes. And they say, okay, that all sounds good. Uh, now go away so we can check the math. And Paul goes away for a little bit and they open up the Bible and they go through the Old Testament. And then they come back the next day. Paul comes back the next day and they go, hey, this is true. And they're praised for that because they didn't just blindly uh, receive what Paul said. They were like, the word of God is ultimate. Let me go check the word of God. Um, one of my favorite ones, though, of this is John the Baptist. You guys know we read this in Luke, where one day John is in prison and he sends Jesus some friends. He says, hey, go ask Jesus, why am I, are you really the Messiah? I told everybody you were the Messiah. And you know what Jesus' answer is? So John the Baptist sends Jesus a message that, hey, Mm, really? That's the, that's the paraphrase. Like, what's going on here? I'm not sure if you're the Messiah like I was telling everybody. I'm doubting. Jesus' answer, do you remember his answer? Go tell John about the people I've healed and the stuff I've done. And by the way, that's the greatest guy that ever lived. Right? That's what he says. Up to, except for me, that's the greatest guy that ever lived. Not me, uh, Jesus. Except for Jesus. That's the greatest guy. I'm third. No, I'm just kidding. You're going to get fired after this, right? You guys are going to have a meeting after church. Um, and Jesus says, he, he never, Jesus never says, you shouldn't, you don't be like John. That guy stinks. He didn't even do his job. He was supposed to tell everybody about me and not doubt and be perfect. And that's not what Jesus says. Today, we're going to read about the last, not the last, but the, the biggest doubting story in all of scripture. So much so that the famous main character is named Doubting Thomas. We're going to talk about Doubting Thomas. For 2,000 years, how many people went to heaven, have died in 2,000 years? Oh, my gosh. You're Doubting Thomas? Um, it's just Thomas now, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, what an unfortunate nickname this poor fella has had, and we'll explain why. Nobody calls him St. Thomas. Nobody calls him Thomas the Twin, Tommy Ten Fingers. I don't know. There's a lot of different ways we could go with this. It's Doubting Thomas. So we're going to read the, the story right before Doubting Thomas, just real quick to kind of set the stage, because there's some details there. Um, and then, yeah, you can click through these now. Um, uh, verse 19 of John 20. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, so do you remember real quick, it's been a while since we did Luke, but the timeline of the resurrection. The women went to the tomb in the morning. They see the angels who tell them. They run back and tell the disciples. John and Peter race to see the empty tomb, and John wins because he puts that in the Bible. The road, uh, then the road to Emmaus happens. So uh, Cleopas and maybe his wife, we said, they take off and they meet Jesus on the road. And uh, they, they realize it's Jesus. They run back to tell the disciples and the disciples say, yeah, we know, we saw him too. Okay, so, um, and then all of a sudden Jesus appears to all these people, right? 
Uh, this, is what this is where we are in that story. So the door, so all that has already happened. And the door is being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came, stood among them, and he said to them, Peace be with you. Now, like we said, um, like we said in Luke, let's not go nuts. The doors were locked. You remember we talked about this. We don't know how Jesus did he transport through the walls like Nightcrawler. You guys know about Nightcrawler from X-Men? Wasn't that his power? Shoots through the walls. Pfft. Um, he could have just opened the door like they did when Peter escaped, like the angels did for Peter when he was broke out of prison. We don't know. Um, either way, or maybe he did bust through the wall. I don't know. Like the Kool-Aid man. No, I'm just kidding. But without breaking the wall. Anyway, he's, all of a sudden, Jesus is standing there, and he says, peace to you. Peace be with you. It was like an ancient, it was an ancient, very common greeting, like, what's cracking? Right? So Jesus pops in. He says, what's cracking? Even though I'm the only one that says that. Verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. This is very important for the Doubting Thomas story. Most of you never made this connection before. Right before the Doubting Thomas story, Jesus shows up and he says, hey guys, and they all think, remember from Luke, they all think he's a ghost. And so Jesus, what does he do in Luke? Remember, um, uh, he eats some fish and stuff. And here it says, he shows them, look at my hands, look at my side. Uh, which would have been really awkward if he's wearing one of those big man dress things. You ever thought about how he did that? Pulls his whole, his whole thing up, right? And he's like, look it. This is, uh, this is, but you got to see, right? Look at this is where they stabbed me. And then verse, the rest of 20, then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord, understatement of the millennium. Uh, verse 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the Father sent me, so even so I am sending you. I'm going to completely pass over that now until we get to the end, but just remember, he says, God sent, the Father sent me, and then I'm going to send you. And then we're going to skip to verse 24. Now, this is where um, we're going to skip verses um, 22 and 23 because they're super weird, and I don't want to explain it right now because it's nothing to do with what we're talking about today. Um, you can Google it later. All right, verse, actually, don't Google it. You can just ask me. Uh, you'll find some crazy. There you go. That's what I'm here for. All right, verse 24. Now the Thomas story. Doubting Thomas, the famous story. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin. So first off, we heard we, we find out he's called the twin. Why is he called the twin? Um, he may have been a twin brother of one of the other disciples. There's three options, and I don't like two of them, and I really like one of them. The second option is he may have had a twin who wasn't a disciple. And the third option is, and this is like a church history thing. I did not make this up. A lot of people think they called him the twin because he looked like Jesus, and they were making fun of him. Now, which one of those do you think is my favorite option, right? Yeah, uh, but we don't know. But Thomas the twin, right? This is why we don't, this is why I said earlier, nobody calls him Thomas the twin in heaven. It's still doubting Thomas, right? Uh, but we also find out he's one of the 12. Now, that's an easy phrase to just pass over to get to the juicy stuff where he doubts. But think about that for a second. Think about what that really means. He spent three years with Jesus listening to all the public teaching, listening to the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies, the whole thing, sitting around after the teaching, at the campfire, asking questions, getting follow-up answers, watching Jesus never, like, lose his temper in traffic. Do you know somebody like that? That's like, you've never really seen them mad, and you're like, something must be wrong with them, right? I know one guy, I won't say, because he might listen to the podcast, but drives me nuts. How does this guy never get mad? You got to wonder, right? That's probably what he was thinking. How does this Jesus guy never lose his temper, Remember, the, the rabbi also, the rabbi relationship, the rabbi-disciple relationship was way closer than like teacher and student. Right? You lived with this person. And being so close to Jesus, he saw some crazy stuff. 
One time Jesus turned water into wine. That's my favorite little comic ever. Jesus walks up to the bar. He was like, what can I get you? And he goes, just a water. <laughs> right? But like, really, the end of that story says this was the first, I forget the exact verse, but this was like the first sign so that these disciples would believe in Jesus. Right? And so like this whole thing was Thomas got to see that. He saw Jesus raise three people from the dead. Right? The widow's son at Nain, Jairus' daughter, and Lazarus. He saw the feeding of the 5,000. He was like, did that really happen? And then Jesus did it again a couple weeks later, and he fed 4,000. One time he was out there on the storm, and Jesus walked up on the water. And then Peter walked on the water, and then he fell in. But, I mean, he still took a few steps more than anybody else in history, right? Thomas was in the boat. He was sitting there. He was watching. He watched Peter walk on what Peter walked on water. Boy, that's something special. And then another time, they were in a storm, and they all thought they were going to die. And Jesus gets up. From a nap, by the way. It's like, boy, this storm is really bothering me. Hey, cut it out. And then the storm just died and the skies open up and it's nice and it's sunny. He saw more healings of demon-oppressed, lame, blind, deaf, mute, sick than he could count, than he could remember. All of this. But then he also saw Jesus get arrested and beaten. And we don't know where most of the disciples were for the crucifixion. We know John was there. We don't know what happened to the rest of them. Uh, but he knew what being crucified meant. He had seen people be crucified. And so um, back to the verse here. So Thomas, he was not with them when Jesus came. Bummer. Um, there's an episode of, um, what is it, How I Met Your Mother, I think, where there's a group of friends, and there's a curse. And one guy, this one guy leaves the room, and then something amazing happens every time he leaves the room. And the curse passes from person to person in the episode. This is that. This is Thomas. He leaves the room. We're not told why he was gone. Maybe he was on a Chick-fil-A run. Wait, no, this was Sunday. Can't do Chick-fil-A. He was out getting pizza. Um, and then um, verse 25. So the other disciples, he gets back with the pizza box. He walks in, and he's still super bummed out. Jesus is still dead. And he gets back with the pizza box, and the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. Now, forget the pizza for a second. Let's think about for a second, without the jokes, what this was really like to be there. Think about Thomas's Sunday. In the morning, the women come back from the tomb in a panicked excitement. They can hardly get the words out. You remember we talked about this in Luke a little bit, but that, you know that feeling where it's just like I, you're so excited about something, you, you almost can't even talk? And then they, they do, and they say the tomb was empty. There were these angels, and they told us the Lord had risen from the dead, and he's alive. The disciples all together. Wait, did you see him? Well, no, we didn't see him, but you heard the part about the angels, right? Uh, well, how'd you know they were angels? Well, they told us not to be afraid. That's what the angels always say. So Peter and John, uh, suddenly Thomas is standing there and he hears a door slam. And he looks over and Peter and John are gone. Well, do we go with them? We can't send all the disciples. The, the, everybody's looking for us. Maybe, think about how long probably went by. We don't know how far they were from the tomb, but let's just guess. Let's fill in some details here that aren't theologically important. 45 minutes, let's say, goes by. Peter and John come back. Thomas says to them, well, John says, dude, I totally beat him to the tomb, you guys. He's very proud about this race for all of eternity. Uh, and then Peter says, nah, man, you cheated. I didn't know we were racing. And then John says, man, I'm going to put this in my book, right? And then Peter says, uh, the, your, your what? And then Thomas interrupts them arguing about this race. It says, what did you guys find? 
I'm imagining that's probably how it went. And Peter says the tomb was empty and his burial clothes were all folded up nice and neat. And it was super weird. And Thomas says, well, did you see the Lord? And Peter says, no, but something is up. And then we don't know what happens. They sit there for a few hours, locked up because they're afraid. And then um, Cleopas and his wife, again, we don't know for sure if it's his wife, but let's just say, are sitting in the room with everybody. And they go, all right, guys, we got to head out. Our apartment's in Emmaus. It's only a few miles away. We're going to go home. Uh, shoot me a text if anything happens. And then, if, again, paraphrasing. Again, a few more hours goes by. And again, we're not told why, but for some reason, Thomas then left. But we're not told why, but he did. Maybe he needed to get water. Somebody had to go out and get the water. Uh, maybe he needed to go to the market and get food. Remember, they have a pretty good-sized group here, a handful of people with the women and the disciples. There's probably 30 people here. I don't know. Um, so it wasn't like they were planning on being here for long term, right? All of a sudden, Jesus was crucified. Somebody's got to go buy food. Um, there's no way they had enough supplies for everybody. Maybe he had a friend in Jerusalem he wanted to go check in on or um, whatever reason. He tells the other 10 disciples, I'll be back in a little while, and he takes off. He runs his errand. He buys the food. He goes to Safeway. He comes back with the groceries, and then he comes back in, and the whole vibe of the room has changed completely, right? You know the feeling in a room when everybody is sad, when everybody is bummed out? Think about a hospital waiting room when somebody had a quick emergency and they might not make it. Nobody was planning for this to happen, car accident or something. Um, even if you didn't know the circumstances, you could walk into that room and cut the tension, the fear with a knife. Uh, or imagine if you've been around my house when the Giants, or let's say they don't lose World Series, but like when the Niners lose a Super Bowl. I remember the only time I ever heard a bunch of youth group kids quiet. We were all watching the Super Bowl together, and they lost a game. We turned off the TV. They cleaned up the room in silence, and everybody walked out. You know that, like a bunch of teenagers, right? You know that feel? You know what I'm talking about? Now, that's what Thomas left. But what he came back to was the flip side of that. Think of a flip side, like the, just the, the excitement. Have you ever seen the videos of, again, like sports stuff, right? Like a family you know when the whole family gets together when somebody in that family is going to get drafted into the NBA or the NFL and they have that like satellite feed of the living room and they call the name and everybody jumps up and is also excited? Or like a surprise party. I don't know why I put that down. I hate, if anybody throws me a surprise party, you're excommunicated. Um, or my house when the Giants win the World Series or the Warriors. If you've been around, there's hooting and hollering and air horns and I usually don't have a voice at the end. Thomas expected to walk into that hospital waiting room, but instead he walked into the party. Everybody is beaming, the kind of beaming where you can't hold it in. And he walks in real nervous because he notices. And he looks over. And even old man Peter is beaming from ear to ear, smiling from ear to ear. Old crab apples McPeter, that's what they called him in the, it's in the Latin, I mean in the Greek, don't worry about it. Um, and he says, uh, what's going on? And then Peter says, Tommy Two Chains, that's what they called him. He says, look, I got something to tell you. And so Thomas sits down, he says, okay. And Peter gets right in his face. And he says, you won't believe this? He's totally alive. And we saw him. And Thomas says, no way, how? And Peter, right, he says, well, first, Mary, he tells him the whole story. 
First Mary Magdalene, she went out to the tomb and she saw him and she thought he was the gardener. And then it turned out it was the Lord. And then I saw him at, um, before she could get back to tell us. She was running back to tell us and I went up on the roof and I was sitting there thinking about those folded clothes, completely confused at what had been happening. And then all of a sudden he was sitting next to me, alive. And I burst into tears crying because I'd betrayed him and he hugged me and he tells the whole story. He forgave me and then uh, he disappeared. And then I ran downstairs to tell everyone and Mary was already there and she was telling her story. We were all pretty excited. And then a little bit later, Cleopas and the missus, they burst in the door and they said, uh, you know, we saw him too on the road to Emmaus. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of their story, boom, he was here in the room. Thomas, here. This is what he says. And then Peter, he's very dramatic, Peter, you got to imagine. He walks right over to the spot and he points at the ground. He stood right there. And Thomas goes, who? Really? And Peter goes, Jesus did. The Lord that we walked with, he stood right. He smiled at all of us. He lifted up his hands so that we could see the marks where the nails, right? He lifted up his shirt and he had a scar where they speared him. And then you won't believe this. We thought he was a ghost, right? Makes sense. And then we, he sat down, he had some fish, right? He ate the last of the fish, by the way. Didn't even ask. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I have no idea, right? But he's eaten fish. We gave him a piece. He sat down. He, he's not a ghost. He's alive. And then he sat there and he taught us and he opened up the Bible and he showed us about the Passover story. And he said, you know the Passover lamb? I'm the new Passover lamb. I die for you. And he explained the whole thing. And he went through the, the sacrifice of uh, the whole sacrificial system. And he talked about this. And he told us about how death couldn't hold him down. And how he's been not just, he didn't just come back to life like Lazarus or those other people, the widow's son. Right? He's resurrected. It's completely different. Thomas, though, not buying it. Right? He walked into this room and he's not buying it. Let's see, the rest of verse, what am I on here? 25. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas, look, I saw what they did to him. Or maybe I've seen people be crucified. Nobody comes back from that. And so I know you guys think you saw him. Maybe you saw, Thomas, I bet he thought, because a lot of them, I, we talked about this in Luke, but they believed in ghosts, right? I, I bet you guys just saw a ghost or something. So unless I can see him, and unless I can touch his hands, and I can see his side the way that you guys got to, I'm not going to believe. Peter was dumbfounded. What? Thomas, I'm telling you, we saw him. Thomas, I don't care. You only believe because you got to see him. Right? You didn't believe before you saw him. That's what I'm going to do. This is why I think the word doubting Thomas isn't really fair. Doubt goes, maybe he's alive. I just can't get there. This, he lays out conditions. Right? If, yeah, this is not doubting Thomas. This is unbelieving Thomas. Right? If we take that Os Guinness quote, he's not in the middle. He's over here. He's saying, I don't believe it. And unless you can prove it to me, I'm not going to take one step towards this. All right, look at verse 26. This is nuts. Wait, is that? There we go. Oh, that's pretty cool. I never turned around before. Um, <laughs> I, I just see the shadow of it behind me. Eight days later, you guys. Growing up in church, I knew this story. And in my head, I thought it went like this. Because I never actually, I was in one of those churches. We didn't read the story. We just heard about it. 
In my head, I thought it went like this. Thomas says, unless I see the nails, and then Jesus breaks in the door. Boom! Hey, Thomas, check this out. That's how I thought the story went. Nope. A week goes by. Now, they counted days different than we do. Eight days means the next Sunday. I'm not going to get into it. This is the next. This is the following Sunday. Well, we would say seven days later. Think about what that week was like. Imagine the first Sunday night. They're all staying up in John. They're at John Mark's mom's house, the upper room in Jerusalem, somewhere near the temple. And despite Thomas's unbelief, everybody else, the room is buzzing. And they eat dinner together with Thomas's groceries, maybe. And they have these beaming smiles on their, those huge grins. And they're talking about all the things that Jesus had taught them in Cleopas and his wife. They fill in the details from the sermon on the road that Jesus gave them for a few hours. Um, they were walking and Jesus taught them. And everyone in the entire room is literally having the best day of their life. Except for Thomas, who sits in the corner by himself, sour, watching the others and refusing to believe. I bet he falls asleep first, while everybody is still up, still talking, still beaming. Wakes up Monday morning, the mood has not changed. So he goes over and they're gonna eat breakfast together. So he walks over to the omelet station. Let's pretend they had an omelet station. He walks over to the omelet station. He's, he's telling the guy, put some bell peppers and some ham in there, you know? Oh man, I miss omelets. I can't eat omelets, but they're very good. Uh, anyway, and Mary, Jesus' mom, is standing in line at the omelet station. She's got her little white plate, you know, and she's so sweet. She's like the group mom, and she says to Thomas, so you really don't believe all of us? She's not harsh like Peter. She says, sweetie, really, think about that. She calls him sweetie. She says, sweetie, she's from the south. She says, think about that. Do you really think that all 30 of us or however many are making this up? And Thomas does that thing when you don't want to talk to somebody where you, you don't look at them. So he's holding his white plate, and he just keeps looking forward. And he says, I just can't get there. And then Mary says, let me tell you about how Jesus was born. And she starts telling him the story. There were these guys from Persia that showed up, and there was these angels. It was a whole thing. And, um, and Thomas says, still, I can't get there. And so he spends all day Monday, Monday kind of distant from everybody. And then this goes on for days and days. And everybody probably mostly left him alone, gave him his space. But you could imagine something like this happens. Friday night, it all blows up. At dinner, they're sitting in the upper room, and somebody is so excited about Jesus. Somebody says something about Jesus, and somebody goes, how cool is it that he's not really dead? I'm so excited. I wonder what he has in store for those of us who believe in him right, the believers, and then somebody makes a snarky remark, well, almost all of us are believers, and everybody looks over at Thomas. It would have been me that said that, and then I regretted it right away, you know, uh, and then they look at Thomas, and then an argument starts back up from the beginning. You all got to see him. I'm the only one here that didn't get to see him. You can't be so harsh with me, right, eh, or something like that, I don't know. Then Saturday rolls around, and you can imagine Thomas at some point had to start thinking about an exit strategy, he was a fisherman. Maybe I'll get back to fishing. Maybe I'll head back up to Galilee. I'll move back up, get the fishing business going again. Well, it's Sabbath today. I can't leave today. Maybe I'll leave tomorrow. Maybe I'll leave Monday. You've got to imagine he was thinking something like that in his head. But then the next Sunday comes around after the longest week of his life. So after eight days, his disciples were inside again, 
and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and he stood among them and he said, peace be with you. Now, I have no biblical backing for this. And normally I don't like to stand here and say that there's no biblical backing for something, but I can almost guarantee because I think Peter was a lot like me with his personality, his annoying personality, you know. And I can almost guarantee that Peter jumped up, didn't even look at Jesus, pointed at Thomas and said, I told you so, <laughs> right? You, you can imagine everybody in that room was thinking two things at the same time. I'm so glad to see Jesus again. And what about Thomas? And maybe I should have slap bet Thomas that he was really alive, right? No, just kidding. Um, no doubt everybody looks over at Thomas because they love Thomas. They knew the struggle he had been through. It was true. They all got to see Jesus already. He, he hadn't seen him. And you can imagine Thomas probably froze, jaw on the floor, and then he thought to himself everything he had been through in the last seven days. Oh, man, he really is alive. And then he thought about his unbelief, and he thought about his week arguing with the disciples and the women and Jesus' mom, oh, no, at the omelet station. Oh, man, he's going to kill me. I bet he's going to be super mad. Is that what Jesus does? No, look at verse 27. So he says to Thomas, put your finger here. Real gentle. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my, sign, in my side. I think everybody was watching. This is like one of those moments in romantic comedies where the two main like, love interests spot each other across the room and everybody at the school dance disappears from focus. You know what I mean? It's just the two of them in the room. I think that's what's going on here. I bet, though, what happened was, as that happened, I bet Thomas broke down crying, weeping. I totally would have. But Jesus probably kept up his smile. He walks over. Thomas, buddy. He calls people buddy like I do. Thomas, buddy, look at my hand. Or probably wrist, I don't know. Look, this is where they put the nails. And then he says this, though. Do not disbelieve, but believe. See what he says? He doesn't say don't doubt. Don't be in the middle. That's not what he says. Thomas wasn't in the middle. He was over here. He says, Thomas, don't disbelieve, but believe. And what does Thomas do? When he sees Jesus, he's standing here in unbelief. He walks right through doubt. Doesn't even, doesn't even stop. He walks all the way over, walks all the way over to belief. And he answered him, my Lord and my God. This is important. Thomas doesn't see Jesus and say, whoa, you are the Lord, right? You are God. He says, my Lord and my God. This isn't an abstract truth for Thomas. This is about a person. It's about his Lord. And now these move from unbelief to belief. Jesus is his Lord and his life will never be the same. And so verse 29, Jesus says, this is the end. Have you believed, this is important for how we're going to end this, how we're going to land the plane today. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So in this passage, everybody here physically saw the resurrected Jesus, but not everyone gets that privilege. A few hundred Christians saw him like this. Billions of Christians didn't through history. So the thrust of the text seems to be, you'll believe if you see him, but then most of us don't get to see him, so what gives? That's the question, right? And Jesus answers that here, or he kind of answers that here. He tells Thomas, it's good that you believe now, 
because you saw me. But most of the people that my father is going to draw to me, that's not how it's going to work. So that leaves us with that question. How are all those people going to come to from, move from here, from unbelief to belief? How are they going to move across? How are they going to move from doubt? Because here's the thing. You doubt, right? You're doubting whatever your name is. You doubt. You, you go through life and you ask yourself, is this really true? Is this really worth my, my whole life, this gospel story? One of the ways we, we doubt, too, is we don't doubt the whole story. We doubt some of the specifics. And we'll go, okay, I mean, I kind of get the gospel, but does it really work? Maybe I'll just earn a little bit of my salvation. That's the most common way Christians doubt. They doubt the heart of the gospel, that you don't have to earn your salvation. And we think, I'll believe 95% of this, but I need 5% where I earn it myself. So you doubt. But also the people around you, your Pabst Blue Ribbon people that you're investing your life in, they doubt. Right? Or they don't believe their unbelief. Right? They don't believe the gospel that we believe, that Jesus came, he died, and he rose for us. So how is it that people go from doubt or unbelief to faith? How are they drawn to Jesus? Well, look, the text has a pattern. It's like a four-step four process, this pattern. The first step is this. Thomas, what does he do? He encounters the risen Jesus, and then he worships. This is how it always works. It always starts with an encounter with the risen Jesus. All these people, they had the same encounter. Step two, once they see Christ, um, here, I'll do it. Sorry, I'm going to switch this slide here. Once they see Christ, they always go out with the good news. Right? What did Jesus say at the end of that first story we read? Look, the Father sent me, and now I'm sending you. Um, Peter in Acts says this. Um, what? That, that's pretty cool. It's, I want to watch that now, but i got to preach and everything. All right. Um, in Acts, Peter says this. In Acts chapter 2, this, this Jesus God raised up, uh, and of that we are all witnesses. Meaning, like, in, the, in his sermon from Pentecost, he says, look, God raised this guy from the dead, and we all got to see it. And he's out there telling people. Um, the section we just read had the same kind of thing that John led us in, had the same thing. Um, Paul had missionary journeys, right? So Peter, he's out there sharing the gospel. Paul's out there sharing. People who saw the risen Jesus, this is what they did. They turned around, and they went out with the good news. Thomas went to India. Did you know this? You want to learn, about, you want to learn some here? All right, here's. There's a book called The Act of, Acts of Thomas. Totally not true by the way, but I want to tell you the story. Um, one scholar called the book peripherally historical, meaning all the details are wrong, but the big plot points are maybe kind of right. So this is what happens in the book. Jesus appears to Thomas after all this, and he tells him to go to India. And so Thomas, he goes to India um, as a carpenter to the court of an Indian king named Gundafar. And this guy, Gundafar, he hires Thomas to build him a palace. And Thomas is super sketchy. So what he does, he takes the money, and then he walks around, and he gives it to all the poor people. And uh, the, the king gets mad, and he says, hey, dude, where's my palace? And Thomas says, well, I built you a palace, but one in heaven. It's not here. So then that, right when the king's real mad, and he's about to get Thomas killed, right, uh, the king's brother dies and goes to heaven. And remember, this is all made up. And he goes to heaven, and he sees his brother's palace, and he says to whoever's in heaven, I don't think it was, I don't know how it worked, 
the abode of the dead, I think is what it says. He says, hey, guys, can I go back and tell my brother this palace is real? And they're like, sure, go for it. So he comes back to life, and he goes and he finds his brother, and he says, hey, I found this palace in heaven that's built for you by this guy, Thomas. Um, and so then King Gundafar uh, converts to Christianity, and then Thomas says, great, my work here is done. He goes to some other parts of India, and in the other parts of India, um, this queen becomes a Christian, and um, this... Uh, and we won't get into it, uh, but she, uh, her husband gets really mad about her becoming a believer, and he has Thomas speared to death, and that's how Thomas dies a martyr, sharing the gospel. Now, that's one story. There's actually a whole other story that I won't tell you, um, that Thomas went to a different part of India and shared the gospel and was killed by Hindu holy men who refused, when he refused to worship the goddess, I wrote this down, Kali, K-A-L-I, Kali, now, while most of the details of both of those stories are wrong, what historians have done is they've looked at these two different stories and said there's a couple of points that are the same in both of them. Thomas was told by Jesus himself to go to India. He shows up in India and royalty converts, and then he's speared to death. So most likely what we can say, and what this one scholar says, is we can say pretty confidently, Thomas went to India and somebody killed him because he was talking about Jesus. <clears throat> even though all the details of those stories are wrong. He was martyred with a spear. This is what they do. You see the risen Jesus in worship, and then you turn around, you go and tell people. That's step two. Step three, though, is when these people, when they go out and tell people about Jesus, the people that they're ministering to, with some of them, they move from doubt and unbelief over here to belief. And <clears throat> this is the story that we're going to read in the book of Acts. But the question is, and I don't have as much, I'm already almost out of time, uh, but uh, the question is, how does that work? How does somebody go from unbelief when they hear about somebody who's encountered the risen Jesus? How do they then move from unbelief to belief? And there's one quick thing I want to tell you about. It's called plausibility structures. We've talked about this in when we did our last series, um, or we talked about this at some point, but we're going to read this book together uh, in the future. It might be the next book we read on Wednesday nights. It's called How to Talk About Jesus Without Being That Guy. And uh, it's written by a guy named Sam Chan. And Sam Chan says this, facts, evidence, and data are surprisingly weak in making something believable. So which is the most powerful in uh, determining belief? It's community. So he looks around, and what he says, he tells a quick story where he goes, Imagine you walk into a room, and there's a guy there, and he says, I was abducted by aliens. You'd go, yeah, okay. <laughs> or imagine you walked into a room, though, of people you knew and trusted, and all of a sudden, every one of them said we were abducted by aliens. You would probably go, eh, I don't know, but why is 30 of my closest friends and family saying they were all abducted by aliens? And imagine that it persisted for a long time. You could kind of picture yourself going, yeah, maybe they were abducted by aliens. Uh, most evangelism and missional outreach, whatever you want to call it, the way that most people come to faith is not one-on-one. -on -one. It's about coming into a community of people who have encountered the risen Jesus and then who have gone out together to tell that story. This is how people come to faith. And um, the more, I'll say this, I'm going to skip through some of my stuff here. Um, as we, the fourth step then is as we go out and we do that as a community. We go out, we, we do what Thomas did after he saw the risen Jesus. We do what Peter did, what Paul did. We take people with us, we go out and we share the faith. 
uh, what'll happen is at the same time we're doing that, our doubts and our unbelief uh, starts to melt away. God uses the mission to melt our own hearts. Because what happens is we'll see people working, we'll see Jesus working in the lives of the people around us, and we'll go, that was really cool. And a little bit of our doubt will move towards belief. And you see the church on mission, and you see the hearts of unbelievers turn to Jesus, and you see all this really wonderful stuff. And all of a sudden now, the stuff that you were struggling with will start to make more sense. Jesus will use those moments to soften your heart. And so what's the point then of the whole doubting Thomas story? Jesus says it at the end. He's, it's not, the point of this is not the easiest way to teach this. Every week when Josue and I get together, we do, what's the wrong way to teach this passage? And we talk about a random passage. The wrong way to teach this passage is to go, so if you're doubting, you need to pray to Jesus so he'll show up and he'll show you his wounds. Right? Because the truth is none of us have seen the risen Jesus. And that's not, that, that's not helpful. He specifically says at the end, that's not how it's usually going to work. I'm going to do that with these guys because they're like, we got to kickstart the church. We got to get the church going. And these apostles have a special calling on their lives that not everybody else has. So that's not usually how it's going to work. But we do know that he did appear to these people. He appeared to a bunch of people. And what did those people do? Because of that, they formed a bond and they formed a community. And in that community, they turned around and they went out and they told everybody what they had seen. And when they did, people met Jesus, but in a different way, right? They met him through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we see that in Acts 2 with Pentecost. And then those guys, they kept the chain going and they wrote down the words of the, you know, the apostles wrote the words down and Paul wrote a bunch of stuff down. They gathered it all up. And then community after community formed and they kept on testifying and growing exponentially with their experience of the risen Jesus. And the world tried to crush them. It tried to kill them and snuff out their message. But the good news, the gospel just kept growing and growing and growing until eventually it landed on Union Street in San Francisco. And we have a direct tie back to a bunch of the people who got to sit with Jesus and watch him eat fish, who got to sit with Jesus and touch his hands and see the mark in his side. And our calling is to follow the same pattern, but not in the exact same way. We want to encounter the risen Jesus and worship through the power of the Holy Spirit. We want to take that news out to the world. We want to see people meet God as we do that. And then as we do that, our own faith will be strengthened. And we'll be like Thomas, moving from unbelief, moving from doubt into belief in this risen Savior. Amen? All right, let's pray.